mighty London came an Irishman one day as the streets are paved with gold. Hello everyone. Welcome to Historian Splaining. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if by any chance you can offer support, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining, and the link should be in the description. Okay, so what do I make of this book? Well, as I said, this is a very ambitious book that sets out to support a very, very far-reaching, sweeping thesis, connecting society across hundreds of years to our present moment and account for the crises and anxieties that people might have, especially in the United States today. So it's not surprising that I don't think it effectively achieves everything that Deneen seems to hope. What does it do? What are its strengths? Well, this book certainly is good for exposing a wide audience to an alternative point of view from outside the liberal tradition. I think he's right that most people in modern Western society implicitly accept some version of liberal assumptions when they think about politics, society, morality. But there are many alternatives and there have been many critiques of liberalism over the past let's say 400 years, from simply hardcore throne and altar conservatism to Catholic and especially Thomist Catholic uh, traditionalism, uh, the revival of virtue ethics, uh, which has become especially strong since about the 1950s with philosophers like Elizabeth Anscombe and Alastair McIntyre trying to revive uh, the approach to morality of Aristotle, and also Marxism and other forms of radical leftism who present a materialist critique of liberalism as the ideological tool of capital. So Deneen clearly is aware of all of these different strands of thought that stand apart from and criticize liberalism. And he fairly effectively synthesizes many of these non-liberal views, okay, uh, from a whole variety of different theorists and philosophers, some of whom I've mentioned, Polanyi, Hannah Arendt, also Wendell Berry. Um, and he gives a fairly creditable presentation of some of these outside points of view. So I think this book is probably effective in at least planting seeds of doubt in some liberal minds, that, that there are reasonable ways of understanding freedom, government, authority, and justice outside of, of our customary liberal vocabulary. He also weaves together many different issues and concerns, you know, changes in education, technology, environmental crisis. The book arguably is quite prescient in its description of people's present-day anxieties and unhappiness. He says in his preface that he completed this book in 2016 before the election of Trump or the Brexit referendum in Britain. And you could say that he successfully anticipated this sort of turn towards resentment, the expression of anger, through voting and acceptance of, you could say, the breakdown of the liberal international order. 
On the other hand, of course, you could say the book is at the same time very presentist. You know, he's very caught up in current fashionable topics and is really shaping his argument to the sort of climate of the moment that he's writing and issues that might have been in the news at that time, rather than taking a kind of longer, deeper view of how liberalism has worked and the challenges to liberalism that have come up for centuries. Uh, but I'll talk about that later. Possibly the most valuable element of his argument is simply the understanding, the basic broader understanding, that social norms are more powerful than laws. Okay, uh, A functioning society really depends on the norms and customs that people internalize and act out every day, not just on formal law. Okay. And this should be especially clear today because we have so many laws and they're so complicated and often so abstruse. Ordinary people don't even know what the laws are. Uh, even lawmakers who are voting on and passing laws often don't even read them and don't know or understand how they work. Our legal system is extremely Byzantine. And hence, when people walk around every day, they're not really thinking about what does the law passed by my state tell me that I should or should not do in my daily life? People are thinking about norms that they learn from their everyday relationships. And as those norms break down, that's when we get a lot of the problems and anxieties that we're experiencing. Okay, And this point, I think, was really ironically demonstrated by Ron Paul a few years ago when in a debate he was questioned about whether... He thought that hard drugs like heroin ought to be all legal. And Ron Paul is at least in name a libertarian. So that's his philosophical position, that things that might be dangerous to one's own person should simply be legal in a matter of free individual choice. And Ron Paul defended this view and said, well, said to the audience, well, if we made heroin legal today, how many of you in the audience would start taking it? And basically, nobody raised their hand. And what he was demonstrating here really is that when it comes to ingrained social taboos like drugs, it's really more the taboo itself that regulates people's behavior and not the law. And we can legislate all we want. Uh, and this has been illustrated. Uh, we Many jurisdictions have very draconian laws about drug possession, drug use, and draconian punishments. Right? And there's a growing consensus today that, that those sorts of laws really aren't working. So a sense of social trust, of shared values and purpose, a sense of hope in the future, all of these are more important to people's behavior and even lawbreaking than are the laws themselves. And that's how I would have you know, if it was up to me, how I would have phrased the case that I think Deneen also is making when he talks about inherited social norms and what he calls culture. Some of the most powerful points in his book are when he actually discusses fine-grained specifics. This doesn't happen very often, but when it does, often it really hits home. And I think a very powerful part of his book is where he simply quotes at length a student of his talking about the feeling of being in a rat race, of having no control over one's future, of having no trust in institutions and being forced to be corrupt and 
pander to the self-interested desires of powerful people like potential employers in order to survive in modern society. You know, this is simply coming right from the horse's mouth, this anonymous student uh, of his. And his book could have used a lot more of that kind of deference to just the self-expressed views, feelings, and experiences of ordinary people. But mainly the main example that he goes back to several times that I think is really powerful and revealing is the Amish. Okay, so I mentioned this before, how Amish people are a close-knit, fairly closed, cliquish, sectarian group that has continued to strictly limit how they use technology and um, instill fairly strict and even repressive norms of lifestyle within their group in dramatic contrast to outside society. And as Deneen points out, many people, liberal-minded modern people, often disapprove of the Amish and their practices, even for very paradoxical reasons. And there's a great passage on page 189 to 90 where Deneen discusses the practice of uh, Rumspringa, which is a traditional period of life where a young person who's grown up in an Amish community is encouraged to go out into the outside world and experience the things that other people experience, like drinking alcohol, sex, media, technology. And then after that sort of period of license, they then are expected to choose and to make a decision whether to remain and be baptized and become a full member of the Amish church or to leave and live a different lifestyle. As Deneen says, the vast majority of these Amish youth choose to remain and to become fully uh, incorporated into Amish society. Only a small percentage, maybe 10%, leave. Uh, personally, I'm surprised it's even that many. But as Deneen explains, when colleagues of his discuss and examine this practice, they often deem these Amish youth as being not truly free. If they choose to remain in Amish society, it can only be because they're being manipulated and mentally and socially controlled by these powerful relationships. And hence, they're not really making a free choice. And one of them that he quotes even said, quote, we will have to consider ways of freeing them. And this, I think, is a very powerful illustration of a lot of what Deneen is trying to talk about, how liberal people with liberal mindsets often see a person as only free if they're completely pulled out of their social context and traditions. And the only legitimate authority or claim on anyone's loyalty can only be the state and nothing else. And Deneen, I think quite rightly, turns this argument back on modern liberal people and asks, well, if Amish people are not really free because they're being somehow conditioned and controlled by their upbringing and their relationships, is that not true of the rest of us? Uh, and I would further ask, well, do we really have a free choice? You know, how many of us have seriously considered whether we want to live the kind of lifestyle we're living or if we want to live like an Amish person? And have we experienced both? Have we been able to weigh the pluses and minuses and make an informed choice? Uh, and if we are somehow free living the way we do without having done so, then why are these Amish people not free? And furthermore, I would say in my experience, the people that I know have often reacted with 
great disgust and antipathy towards these sorts of closed traditional religious groups. Uh, you know, the Amish are a great example, also Orthodox Jews, you know, not that they're the same, but there are some commonalities. Uh, Orthodox Jews and others like uh, Mennonites, uh, liberals often summarily dismiss or denigrate these sorts of closed traditional groups, assuming that somehow their point of view is superior and better informed. And I think that there's an element of of defensiveness, sort of like the way meat eaters sometimes get angry at vegans, even if the vegan is in no way trying to convert them. <laughs> but there's a sort of insecure defensive reaction, a sort of feeling of self-doubt or embarrassment about one's own choices and behaviors that one then, you know, squelches by attacking someone who makes a different choice, and particularly someone who chooses to limit, to place limits on themselves that restrict their behavior. Similarly, people make the same sort of argument, and I think use the same sort of fallacy when they respond to critics of technology. You know, so I can sit here like Patrick Deneen and say, here are problems with the internet, or here are problems with smartphones, and these are things I disapprove of, uh, either wholesale or in part. And often liberal liberals that I speak to will respond by saying, but you use the internet or you use a smartphone, so therefore you can't complain about it. You've somehow sort of sacrificed your right, given up your right to, to criticize these things because you have consented to them by using them. This, of course, is, is an example of how individual choice is taken as overriding and canceling out group or social choice, right? I'm not saying that any one individual person is wrong for using the internet or Facebook or, or a smartphone, but I'm saying that maybe this is a bad thing for our society to do as a whole. But society as a whole is sort of erased by simply saying, well, if you have participated individually, even though you have individually have no control over society's adoption of these technologies, you know, I have to use the internet. I can't get a job or anything like that without at least email, right? And I tried, last time my phone died, I tried to just get a simple flip phone. I would be fine with that, but I can't. <laughs> it's not even available anymore. I have to have a smartphone, right? Society and institutions have already made these decisions collectively. Uh, but if you participate individually, that is taken as signifying consent and consent that then cannot be taken back. So in this way, I think it's true that these experiments in living that Mill talked about are deceptive because they only apply to individual activities and choices, not group choice. Okay, Mill never speaks about experiments in living in the form of communes or sects or clans or tribes or any of these sort of groups that live by different norms. And even today, a lot of people take a sort of million attitude and view these sorts of alternative social groups with their distinctive lifestyles as culty and hence inherently repressive and unfree, right? So, so again, I, I think Deneen is, is right that uh, the way we make choices all the time is affected by this redefinition of freedom as purely individual and not as social. Okay, so what would I see as the significant weaknesses of this book. Well, 
Before I examine any particular weaknesses, I have to describe the nature of this book. What sort of book is it? What genre would I put it in? Is it social commentary? Is it philosophy? Well, basically, I would say the genre of this book is theory, okay? It falls into this weird gray area category that I've talked about before of theory, you know, not not any particular kind of theory, not a theory, but just theory as a mass noun, right? And theory, like post-structuralism or Marxism or what have you, theory is this kind of form of writing and argumentation that falls into the gray area between, on the one hand, history, and on the other hand, philosophy, right? So uh, theory has very unclear standards and criteria. How are you supposed to judge what is good or bad theory? How are you supposed to show that, if, that theory is persuasive or not? Since it's a new genre and not really even a discipline, it doesn't have the clear standards of, of older disciplines like history or philosophy, right? So it is, it's not as empirically rigorous as history, where you have to marshal evidence and sources that you cite and put forward an interpretation of those sources that others can then dispute. And on the other hand, it's not as logically rigorous as philosophy. It doesn't expect you to engage closely with other people's arguments and examine their their logic, their reasoning, and try to marshal uh, a counterargument the way philosophers customarily do. It's sort of neither here nor there. It doesn't have to have the historical rigor of history nor the argumentative rigor of philosophy. It, it's sort of this moving target. Okay, so this book, like most other theory, it doesn't have clear logical or argumentative rigor. And most importantly, it really doesn't consider or even discuss liberal counterarguments, right? It doesn't, there's no close examination of the core texts of liberal philosophy. He does briefly, for a page or two, talk about Mill, okay, with a couple short quotations. He does talk about Federalist Paper Number 10, which is an interesting, very interesting document, which maybe I'll talk about later when I talk about the Constitution. But he never really argues that any of these particular texts show the sort of core logic of liberalism and what might be wrong or faulty in that reasoning, okay? And in fact, very late in the book, on page 136, he briefly refers to Locke's second treatise on government, which Locke wrote in 1690 in the wake of the Glorious Revolution. And Deneen refers to that text as, quote, liberalism's foundational text, which is a passage that really struck me when I read it, because I thought, okay, if you actually think that liberalism has a foundational text, which, you know, I wouldn't necessarily agree with, but if that's what you think, then maybe you should have discussed that and put it up front early on in the book and said, here's the sort of core underlying argument of liberalism, and here's how I'm going to pick it apart and present an alternative argument. But he doesn't do that. He just sort of breezes past with no analysis Okay, the book really has no particular historical awareness. He never explains where he think liberaliz thinks liberalism came from or how it came about, right? Why did certain people adopt these liberal arguments? What was appealing about it? 
okay? Uh, who embraced it and why, okay? From my point of view, I would say, well, there's one fairly obvious answer to that question, which partly explains this turn of events, which is that liberalism is an appealing philosophy for people engaged in trade and commerce. If you see yourself as benefiting from a market and benefiting from trade, then it makes sense to look at society as basically uh, an open arena where free individuals make free exchanges and agreements. And hence, to look at society as kind of just a big market. Okay. And that's why I would argue liberalism really caught on and flourished in 17th and 18th century England, which was the most commercial society of that time. And that it spread to other societies that also were commercializing, like, like Britain did. Okay, Deneen never makes this argument, and I think perhaps he doesn't make this historical argument because maybe he doesn't want to sound too Marxy. You know, this is more or less kind of the argument that that Marxists tend to make, right? That liberalism is the ideology of, as they would say, capitalist society. You know, neo-Marxists would say uh, liberalism is the ideology of capitalism. I don't agree with that exact description either. You know, I don't believe in capitalism as a meaningful category, but Clearly, trade and commerce are important in explaining what liberalism is and where it came from. So it really, so the book, as I said, it doesn't, it's not a rigorous piece of philosophy where he's effectively uh, dismantling someone else's argument and putting forward an alternative. It's also not rigorous historically. He's just sort of breezily saying, well, there's this thing, liberalism, it came about hundreds of years ago, and America's liberal, with very few specifics, okay? The book argues much more by repetition than by illustration, right? He has these core points, as I think should have come through, that he hammers over and over again. But there's not a lot of, of, of illustration of who actually embraced these ideas, how did they put them into effect, and what is the life of a liberal person like? You know, how does it play out in practice. And for these reasons, I think that this book is very unlikely to be persuasive to people who don't already basically agree with his viewpoint. Now, I do agree with a lot of his views, okay? I'm, you might be able to tell, you might have guessed, I'm a person who doesn't really subscribe to the basic assumptions of liberal humanism. You know, maybe I, I do in part. You know, I'm a lot like Deneen. Maybe I accept certain good points that liberals have made, and I wouldn't throw it all out wholesale. But I don't believe in this mythology of the social contract, and I don't believe in the anthropology of liberalism, and there are a lot of implications of that. So I'm a person who I think coming into reading this book is, is pretty prone to accept his arguments. But I have to constantly ask myself, if I were a committed liberal, or if I had never entertained this sort of anti-liberal line of thinking, would this have convinced me? And I, I think the answer is no. I really think that this is more an effort to, to put forward a point of view that might be provocative and get attention at this moment of, of questioning and of anxiety in liberal democracy. But I really don't think it's going to persuade many people. So Deneen uh, criticizes liberalism mainly by pointing out its most extreme and bad effects. 
that should be clear and vivid to anyone in the 21st century. Things like extreme class separation and inequality, the rapid advance of technology with uncertain implications, uh, the anti-democratic attitudes of many modern liberals, the spread of materialism, and of social isolation and and feelings of aimlessness and anomie, which could potentially allow for the rise of extreme authoritarianism, like perhaps is happening in Brazil, the Philippines, or even the United States, according to some. So all of these are things that kind of give hooks and relevance and immediate importance to his book. But he uses all of these issues and crises without, I think, attacking the root of the question, without really engaging with the liberal idea of the abstracted individual. He doesn't, I, I guess I would phrase it as, he doesn't attack the question, is an individual person really a distinct entity apart from the social bonds and ties that shape their lives? Uh, or is the human being essentially social? Okay, that is, that's not an easy question. It's a psychological, it's a metaphysical question. And... Deneen, I think, rather than engaging with that kind of hard question, is uh, is instead uh, sort of throwing the kitchen sink at liberalism and trying to pin blame for all of these problems on, on liberalism. And it repeatedly came to my mind, uh, the contrast between Deneen's style of argument and arguments that have been made even by fairly mainstream conservatives like Peter Berger, who in his essay uh, on the obsolescence of the concept of honor asks the reader to imagine sort of scenes in the life of a knight, uh, you know, a a a warrior on horseback. And he says, well, suppose we saw two scenes in the story of the life of a knight, one where he is in bed, maybe with a lover, naked, and then another where he has put on his armor and is carrying his banner with his insignias and is riding out Uh, to battle in full armor. And Berger asks, well, which of these is the real man? Which of these shows who he truly is? Right? And modern people would tend to say, well, the one where he's in bed, you know, where he's revealing his private self, expressing himself through his sexuality. This is sort of his essential self. Whereas a pre-modern person like a medieval would say, no, 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 that's just concupiscence. That's just him satisfying certain lower desires that anyone might have. His true self is the self where he's in armor and carrying his banner and showing uh, his, his place in the world. And what distinguishes him is his role and, and the duties that define him. Okay, so this, I think, distills this sort of deep kind of metaphysical choice that people have to make when they weigh whether or not they're convinced by liberal philosophy. And Deneen, I think, just doesn't get to that kind of root of the problem. So as for how Deneen talks about liberalism, you know, I gave you his little initial summary of liberalism as a philosophy, right? But as the book goes on, He continues to talk about liberalism and he elides certain distinctions, okay? He uses liberalism to refer to, I think, several different things that may be connected, but that are not actually the same. On the one hand, there's liberal humanism, the philosophy, 
right? Belief in rights-bearing individuals, the social contract. Then there is liberal democracy, the sort of system of government and civil society that to one degree or another accords with liberal humanism, okay? And he talks about that in governmental terms, and I, as I said, I would add certain civil institutions like a free press. And then there's liberalism in the sense of the modern lifestyle that is common in liberal democratic societies, right? People being uh, mobile, independent, weak relationships, technology. And Deneen repeatedly combines these various things together under this general heading of liberalism. And then he speaks of this thing, this sort of abstract notion, as a kind of living, acting creature that makes choices and, and decisions. Uh, so in this way, he's sort of reifying and mythologizing liberalism into almost like a, a ghost or demon shaping history in the same way that people have done with capitalism and culture and things like that. So for example, uh, on page 18, he looks at modern society and how weakened individuals are in the face of modern institutions. And he speculates, quote, this suggests that all along, the individual was the tool of the liberal system, not as was believed, vice versa. And later on, when he's discussing the sort of separation of liberal elites from the rest of society, he makes these very accusatory statements. Um, liberalism, he says, has always been animated by a vision of how humans ought to live, but it masked these normative commitments in the guise of neutrality. So he's sort of toying with this idea that liberalism is has its own agenda, its own goals, its own motivations, apart from the people who embrace it. And he even refers a few pages later to, quote, the lengths to which liberalism will go to reshape the world in its own image. Now, this is, I think, a very weird way of talking, that liberalism uh, is deceptive, it's insidious, and that it has its own goals and its own ends, and that it manipulates and controls people. Uh, and this, I think, is a way, really, I think, of, of avoiding a harder conversation, which is discussing actual liberal people. It's not liberalism that does these things, right? Maybe in a mythic sense, but it's really, liberalism is not a, it's, it's not a living creature. It, it's not able to do those things. It's liberals. It's liberals who promote a certain view of the world, who promote a certain lifestyle, who, and who often cover over or mask what they're really doing, right? And he avoids the harder question of why do people become liberals, okay? And what do, they, what do they do? How do they behave when they are liberals? And why did liberalism catch on and succeed? Why has it won over so many people? Uh, he had says at one point in the introduction, well, liberalism appeals to the easy liberties, okay? So he's making a sort of vague psychological argument, which is not really developed, and as I said, he, he accuses liberalism of being insidious, of having hidden intentions and biases. Okay, and he does a, a few points. He does refer to a liberalocracy or to liberalism's apologists as his sort of opponents that he's talking with. But he never fleshes out who are these people uh, and, and what does he think their real motives are. 
Perhaps I think he's afraid of sounding partisan or bitter. Uh, And again, maybe he's afraid of sounding too Marxist. But there's a great irony here that I think left-wing critics of liberalism often do the same thing in talking about capitalism, right? Saying, well, uh, this sort of uh, superhuman force that's taken over the world and that causes our problems is capitalism, rather than saying it's capitalists, you know, people with capital who make actual individual choices and decisions. And again, the obvious response, I think, to this dilemma would be to say, look, liberalism first gained a foothold and flourished because it's congenial to commerce and uh, free choice and the view of society as a market are amenable to profiteering. So in this way, he's done sort of an end run around actual social historical analysis. So he could have approached liberalism more philosophically by attacking and dismantling the idea of rights and the unencumbered individual self. Okay, and uh, there are many ways of doing this. You know, utilitarians have done this. Uh, You can even think of George Carlin, you know, saying, uh, there's no such thing as rights. You don't have rights. You have temporary privileges. And I think what, you know, what George Carlin is trying to do in that critique is sort of unveil how rights are just contingent social creations. They don't have this special kind of metaphysical reality to them. He also could have attacked it historically, okay, and worked through where did these ideas come from and why, right? And how do they fit into uh, modern society and modern institutions? Okay. If we go back and disaggregate these different things that that he's talking about under the heading of liberalism, the philosophy, uh, the moral lifestyle, the political system, uh, we can see that they often don't really fit together. Okay, Sometimes they work directly against each other. For instance, uh, he repeatedly cites Mill, you know, and Mill was sort of the great spokesperson of the rising liberal party in Victorian Britain in the 1850s, 60s. And This rise in liberalism, which in a way made Britain, you could say, the first liberal society, and certainly the the one with the first liberal party, was also extremely repressive in its social norms and customs. And arguably, these two things often go together, right? Having a free, open, legal and political regime that affords extensive individual rights, freedom of movement, speech, trade, often coincides with very repressive social norms. And some, like Nietzsche, have actually argued that these two things are allied, that governments feel more free to be liberal and permissive when society is very controlled by norms and customs, and that and, and hence, uh, liberal governments tend to preside over the most repressive societies. And uh, the United States, of course, is different from Britain, but you can see arguably the same phenomenon. You know, Noam Chomsky has said uh, America has very permissive free speech and free press laws, but Americans censor themselves voluntarily much more than anyone else in the world, right? Social censorship can go along with legal freedom. So these instances, I think, really throw a wrench in the story that 
Deneen is trying to tell, where liberalism somehow leads directly to social breakdown and breakdown of norms and everyday practices, like he's arguing, that in fact there's a lot more history in between the rise of liberal philosophy and the 21st century crisis that we're in, uh, and that in fact uh, a lot of the norms, traditions, communities, institutions that Deneen is pointing to as strong and healthy existed under liberal regimes. Things like, uh, he talks about the breakdown in norms in the banking industry, and he gives us an example of, of better banking, uh, banks in the 1920s. Well, that was a very, very liberal regime, a laissez-faire regime in the 1920s. And yet there were certain norms regulating uh, how bankers behaved. Okay, And there are many other examples like this. Uh, you know, traditional liberal arts colleges flourished in otherwise very commercial societies like the, the United States in the 19th century. So really, I think there is a fundamental weakness in his story that he's trying to present, that the crises of social breakdown that he's talking about are mostly recent phenomena. You know, this is not to say that, that they never happened before in earlier centuries, but they've really accelerated since the 1970s or even arguably just within the last 20 years. There's, you can't trace back a line all the way directly to, to the first advent of liberalism in the 16 or 1700s, okay? And Deneen doesn't really even try to do that. He simply skips over those intervening centuries, right, and tries to collapse time. So his book could be a lot stronger if he actually examined more closely the, the specific examples of the problems he's talking about. Things like the breakdown of industrial towns and cities in the Rust Belt, uh, towns that have simply disappeared or legally abolished themselves, the breakdown of, of uh, extended families that comes from social mobility, okay, as more and more people are isolated and alone, okay, all of these things are, are real and important, according to most observers, but he doesn't really explain why have these things arisen so dramatically just in within his own lifetime. And uh, he also fails to consider the other side of traditional societies, okay? He doesn't seem to take into account liberal criticisms of traditional society. He doesn't acknowledge how often arbitrary and self-serving traditional prejudices and taboos are. He doesn't consider phenomena like uh, people being disowned or cast out of their communities against their will because either they are gay or because they form relationships with people across ethnic and religious lines. Uh, and he doesn't, I think, discuss certain interesting examples of people who have been cast out of their traditional societies and formed their own countercultures, like, for example, uh, gay communities that gather together and form their own practices, their own ethics, their own language in many cases. And if Deneen had considered these, they could work into his argument in a very interesting way, you know, and that uh, society as a whole should encourage the creation of these sub-communities and subcultures. But he basically avoids this entire side of the story of 
of how often traditional communities really feed upon their own and destroy their own relationships and bonds internally. And he also doesn't consider the liberal critique of the older ideal of civic liberty and virtue, okay? In a traditional society, like let's say classical Athens, who decided what constituted virtue, what constituted a good life? Who decided what was justice? Who decided what was the common good and on what basis? You know, often these judgments are simply made by whoever has the most power and influence in that particular society, and they define liberty, virtue, and justice and all of these concepts according to their own interests, right? So a liberal could say, well, that older ideal of liberty that you are idealizing is basically just a way of saying behaving in the way that powerful elites want you to, okay? Rather than making your own choices and your own judgments. So... This is a very cynical argument, of course, and I'm personally not entirely convinced by it, but it's a significant argument, and Deneen simply doesn't address it, right? Uh, and this is a serious problem, I think, even for a sympathetic reader like myself. He also does not really carefully examine the distinctive arguments of the modern left and right, right? He basically asserts that these can all be thrown into the same liberal grab bag, but he doesn't consider how people on the modern left and right are, in fact, selective liberals. Okay, so conservatives might make liberal arguments for personal freedom in terms of the market, but when it comes to marriage or sex or questions like abortion, then liberal logic goes out the window, and instead they want to reinforce traditional norms and morality and traditional social bonds. And likewise, modern-day left liberals might be liberal about personal matters like sex, but when it comes to trade or the minimum wage, you know, economic issues like this, they advocate for a social good or a sense of social justice as against individual freedom of action. So really, I don't think his argument is likely to land with most readers because modern day people are very slippery, right? And they can move in and out of liberal logic and liberal thinking kind of at will, right? Uh, and disavow liberal assumptions while still using them in other contexts. So I think that this is part of why he really could have made a much stronger critique of the basic philosophical grounds of liberal philosophy and hence more successfully disarmed his, his possible opponents, right? By, by basically undermining their ability to revert to liberal arguments selectively, right? So this failure to sort of identify the basic, a basic fundamental flaw or fallacy in liberal logic it means that he, I think he can't really pin liberals down, okay? Because their thinking is much more slippery and, and complicated than it seems, okay? And I would argue personally that to really engage liberalism effectively, you have to, uh, you have to criticize and make an argument against the liberal tendency to valorize freedom, personal freedom, as the utmost value. And interestingly, people who claim to be criticizing 
liberalism often still accept that premise. You know, Deneen is saying, well, you know, liberty is good. It's just, you just have the wrong notion of liberty. We need a, an older notion of liberty. And often leftists like Marxists will say, well, uh, you know, we're fighting for real liberation. It's just real liberation requires overthrowing private property or capitalism or what have you. So we just have a different notion of liberty than the liberal notion. But I would say, well, if we take liberty basically to mean some kind of freedom, then we have to ask, well, why is freedom the most important fundamental value? Freedom, in, some, in the views of some, is like money in the sense that it doesn't have any inherent value unto itself. It only has value insofar as you can trade it for something else. Uh, so my personal freedom or your personal freedom is basically meaningless unless you use that freedom in order to make certain decisions about your life that enrich your life and make your life meaningful, right? About uh, what sort of work you're going to do or what sort of people you're going to know, what sort of people you're going to help, what you're going to create, right? And liberalism is just a, excuse me, liberty or freedom is just a tool to those ends, right? So that's that's, you know, just a sort of vague gesture towards a more fundamental criticism of liberal assumptions that I think Deneen doesn't make. Okay, and lastly, because of this, I would say, failure to really tackle the underlying assumptions of liberalism, his response is, is vague, right? His proposed solution is very vague and unclear, okay? He points to practices of self-rule and localism, which is fine, but what necessarily makes them desirable? And how do you choose? What He has no specific examples of ways of living or things you can do that he sees as responding to liberalism rather than simply falling under the larger umbrella of liberal, you know, lifestyle choices, okay? What are his examples and what are the criteria you would use to judge what is a good local practice? He leaves open, you know, why not choose a sort of radical alternative theory and model of life? Why not be an anarcho-syndicalist, for example? Or why not just be a good old throne and altar conservative? You know, those are worldviews of greater or lesser coherence that imply certain lifestyles, certain rela relationships. Why doesn't he embrace one of those? What is his uh, alternative proposal? And it leaves me with the question, is this not a retreat? Is he not basically ceding politics in the political realm to defeatism, right? To the power of the state and the market. How can this decline and breakdown of modern society be stopped without some sort of plan. Okay, so finally, what, what are my conclusions? What, what are my thoughts beyond what I've already said that I can take home after the experience of reading this book? Well, I would say that uh, liberalism can be attacked more fundamentally, and it may be a, a worthwhile endeavor to really question and re-examine liberalism. And I would argue that liberalism in my description, liberalism is like a cargo cult, right? So you may have heard of cargo cults, these sort of religious groups that have formed, especially on isolated islands, 
where at some point in the past, say during World War II, uh, modern people, whether American, Japanese, with modern technology like radios and microwave ovens, have shown up and shared this technology with local people who knew nothing about them. And these local people have come to believe that these visitors and the technologies they brought were somehow divine or magical, that they came from the realm of the gods, uh, and that maybe someday they're going to return again, and hence they have to prepare for this sort of apocalyptic return of, of the gods. Um, I think that liberalism is a lot like a cargo cult in that it takes certain things that were created in history by regular people for ordinary practical reasons. Uh, in this case, rights, you know, rights to property, rights to speech, uh, rights to freedom of religion, things that may be perfectly good and useful, but that are just regular human creations that came from a certain society, and it elevates them to divine status, as if these rights were somehow dropped from heaven, from God or the gods, when actually you can trace their history. You know, we know that basic liberal concepts of rights came from medieval society, running all the way back from before the Magna Carta up through the Glorious Revolution and the Bill of Rights and the American Revolution and so on. And that they're the result of certain ordinary human struggles and conflicts, conflicts between the crown, nobles, the rising commercial class. And I'm not saying that any of these things are bad, uh, but that they're just ordinary human tools that can be more or less useful. And if you, look, if you look at liberalism as a cargo cult in this way, it can demystify these ideas. And it removes, I think, the need to justify or debate about what rights people ought to have, right? This becomes a normal political question rather than a question of sort of overarching doctrine. So when we talk today in our debate, we often allied uh, two different kinds of propositions, saying everyone has such and such a right, such as everyone has the right to free speech, and everyone ought to have this right, right? We say these things almost interchangeably. You know, you could imagine uh, someone making a speech at the UN and saying everyone has the right to freedom of speech. Well, as George Carlin obviously would say, no, everyone doesn't have the right to free speech. There are all kinds of repressive regimes and laws all around the world. Even, even here in the United States, there are limits on your speech. Rather, though, that's just a temporary social and legal privilege. Now, of course, we could say, well, George Carlin, you're missing the point. If you say everyone has a right to free speech, what you really mean is everyone ought to have that right. Everyone should be free to express themselves without consequence or you know, without legal punishment. And that's true, but... That also is missing the point that, as I said, these rights are human creations and that we should be able to discuss what sort of rights people have and under what conditions in order to serve some other purpose. So liberalism, I would argue, has a certain metaphysical scheme of the world. Okay, In the liberal scheme of the world, individual people come first. They sort of are prior to everything else. Those individual people then get certain rights like speech and property rights, right? And once people have those individual rights, especially the right to property, then that allows for commerce, right? Market trade. And 
law and government then is created artificially in order to protect those rights and in order to protect trade and commerce. Now, I would question this and say, well, a better understanding, a more true understanding of people and society is to say, well, people have always been social, right? We're social animals, and if you trace us back to our ape ancestors, they were always social. People have always lived in groups with norms and rules and relationships. So individuals in society came first. From those arise certain organized, lasting customs, laws, and government, right? Regimes of power and authority. From those, then, certain rights are created, like property rights. And this happened in certain places and times in history. And then from those, you get commerce, right? So commerce and the market are these artificial creations that come out of certain sorts of societies, okay? So whereas the liberal scheme is individual people, then rights, then commerce, then law and government, I would say a better philosophy puts society and people in society first, then laws and government, then rights, and then finally commerce. And this, as I said, completely changes how you see markets, right? Rather than a sort of uh, given law of nature, there is a certain social creation of a certain kind of society. Okay. Liberalism is pernicious, in my view, because it closes off the possibility of group choice, right? It takes away our ability to make decisions together about how to live socially, right? Things like what sort of lifestyle should be possible, what sort of technology should we use or not use. And instead, it breaks that power down to the individual level, right? So all sorts of group achievements, achieving a certain uh, way of life or certain socially created works of art are out of reach. And instead, whatever conditions people live in, which they may have no individual control over, are sort of irresistible and are legitimized by the illusion of choice. Okay, and an example of this, like, uh, like the argument, oh, well, you can't be against smartphones because you use one. Similarly, uh, an acquaintance of mine uh, disapproved of and criticized the people who were protesting against the Dakota Access Pipeline that was, you know, completed recently in South Dakota and said, well, you know, people shouldn't be protesting it because they drive cars with gas and that comes from the oil, right? So the fact that somehow an individual person in order to live in society is using a commodity that came from this pipeline therefore means that they can't be against the pipeline. They have implicitly approved of it, right? And this sort of reasoning takes away the ability of people to debate and decide as a group what kind of world they want to live in, okay? And by taking away that ability, it basically cedes power to people who are already powerful. You know, people like, say, oil company CEOs or oil company investors then are given free reign to do whatever they want, regardless of how the society around them approves or disapproves. Okay, so ultimately, I think, regardless of whether you agree with these arguments I've made, there is a need, I think, to carefully examine and question the fundamental logic of underlying liberalism, right? And carefully, critically examine whether it's persuasive and what its ramifications are. And 
I'll end by illustrating what I'm talking about with a recent debate that just flared up and apparently is current right now, even as I speak, among conservatives in the United States. Uh, And this debate was sparked apparently by a speech that the sort of pundit commentator Tucker Carlson made on his Fox News show uh, last week, where he sat in front of the camera and he attacked so-called ruling elites that believe with a religious fervor in market capitalism. Okay, this is his phrasing. And he argued that market capitalism was destroying small-town economies and that, therefore, in effect, it weakened families, leading to declines in marriage, absentee parents, and to addiction, social despair, etc., And he said, quote, any economic system that weakens and destroys families is not worth having. A system like that is the enemy of a healthy society. And he went on to ask, quote, does anyone still believe that cheaper iPhones or more Amazon deliveries of plastic garbage from China are going to make us happy? They haven't so far, end quote. Okay, so this was taken as, you know, a fairly shocking broadside to a lot of mainstream conservative commentators who see healthy society, a sense of personal responsibility as going hand in hand with free market commerce, okay? And particularly significantly, Reason Magazine, which is a fairly popular libertarian magazine, okay? So one that in a lot of ways is really very committed to liberal humanist assumptions. Uh, Although it in a way leans right because it's very concerned with market capitalism, really, to put it bluntly, and uh, supports uh, free market philosophy, it it, it can be seen as kind of a a mouthpiece for the sort of liberal mentality that Patrick Deneen is talking about. So Reason Magazine responded with an editorial arguing back against Tucker Carlson. And according to this editorial, Tucker believes that, in their words, quote, the failure of international bankers to make people happy and give them rewarding family lives is grounds for bureaucratic control. Although pitched as anti-government populism, Carlson's prescription is clear. Government management of the economy in order to force citizens into what politicians consider to be happiness. End quote. So here, I think we can see Reason Magazine falling right into the sort of pattern that Patrick Deneen was describing when he said that liberals, whether they're to the right or the left of the modern day spectrum, they see political debate as simply a contest between, on the one hand, the state, and on the the other hand, the market. And they simply choose which one of those two entities they think will be more liberating. Okay, so obviously to Reason Magazine, uh, Tucker uh, must be mistaken in thinking that there is any legitimate criticism of market capitalism and of capitalists like bankers on the grounds that they're harming people's happiness because that, in their view, implies he must be siding with the state over the market. Okay, And this piece closes with a statement of core principles that they're committed to. And they say, quote, freedom, economic or personal, 
is not created by human beings. It is the rightful, natural state of all persons. It can unjustly be destroyed, but never transcended. Nor were the infinitely diverse institutions that we call the market ever created. They're a spontaneous order generated by the free choice of countless individuals pursuing happiness as they decide. Some of their choices may be foolish or seem so to outsiders who lack full information. But the freedom to make choices for all its disruptiveness is the only independence or happiness that can ever truly be meaningful. So here, as you can see, reason is basically recapitulating liberal doctrine, right? And, and saying the market is a natural outgrowth of the natural order of the world. And the sort of most fundamental reality that comes before any sort of social organization is the free choosing individual, right? And no other good, no other value can possibly supersede that underlying principle. So this response, I think, again, is an illustration of the trap that Deneen is talking about and this sort of forced choice of whether you think liberation will come from the market or the state. Now, Tucker Carlson is a pundit that I don't entirely trust, that I often disagree with. I don't think he's a great philosopher. But what's so important in this conversation, I think, is that for all the legitimate criticisms of Carlson's speech— at least he did try to get down to harder, more sensitive and deeper questions of what is the point of politics? What is the point of society and social organization? And is freedom, at least freedom in the sense of market choice, really the most fundamental value? Does nothing else take that place? So according to his view, he says the goal for America is happiness. And he says that this includes things like dignity, purpose, self-control, independence, and above all, deep relationships with other people. Okay, so Tucker Carlson might have read <laughs> Patrick Deneen's book. I don't know. But, uh, but what I want to bring into relief here is that this live question of what do we want? How do we make social decisions? How do we shape things like laws? just for the sake of protecting freedom or for something else that we might call happiness? What is that? Okay. What are we actually striving at? Uh, and this goes then again to questions of selfhood and identity, right? What is a real person? What is a good life? Okay. And what this debate highlights, I think, is not necessarily... Uh, you know, who's right or wrong, okay? You can probably tell who I'm more sympathetic to, but as, as far as I'm concerned, neither of these are individuals whose views I embrace. But I think that we're seeing a pattern that is also, that Patrick Janine's book is also a reflection and an expression of, which is that the particular kinds of crises that we're facing today in these recent decades are pushing people to more seriously discuss our basic political assumptions and our basic underlying liberal humanist philosophy. And 
I don't know if Patrick Deneen is right that some alternative view of the world is going to come out of local practices, or if maybe some alternative view of the world will come out of these debates (laughs) on Fox News. (laughs) I don't know. But what I am confident of is that people who simply cling to and recapitulate traditional liberal assumptions are losing ground, uh, and that this sort of denial of the ideological crisis that we're entering into can't last forever. So hopefully we're looking at brighter horizons. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, this might all sound quite pessimistic, but but I'm hopeful. So uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this very long discussion. I'd be interested in, in any thoughts or reactions. Please email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com. Thank you.